Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. God's Word. Once you find the book of 1 Timothy, if you're new to the Bible, fortunately for us, God has ordained that all the T's would be together in the New Testament. So you can just start finding your way towards the back of the book. If you hit Revelation or Maps, back up a little bit, look for the T's, you'll find 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And, and kind of what we do when it comes to messaging here, if you're new to Paradigm or if you just want to kind of get a peek behind the curtain a little bit, we'll, we'll do a couple of different things for uh, the year. One thing is that we'll take topics that we believe that are really, really relevant to young adults and we'll say, man, what are young adults, what questions are they asking? What are the things that they need to get wisdom on so that they can navigate young adult years? And, and so we'll speak into those topics. One of those that we just got through talking about a couple of weeks ago was dating, sex, relationships. We think that that's relevant to you guys. And so we talked about a biblical perspective on how to get a date, how to rock singleness, how to get married, how to break up, all of that stuff. And then we also like to take books of the Bible and then walk line by line line through those books. And so that's what we're doing right now because our hope is this. At the end of the year, you would have gleaned biblical wisdom to navigate some things in your life that are very, very time sensitive in this season that you're in. And that also you would be able to look back over the year if you have tuned in with us and you would see that you have now gained a commentary on various books of the Bible. And because we made the decision to go through books of the Bible, it forces us to talk about things that we probably wouldn't normally talk about, and tonight is one of those nights. And so we're gonna get into 1 Timothy chapter two, and I'm really, really excited because there's some really, really dicey things that we're gonna talk about. Before we get there, I don't know if you ever had the day, much like the day I had when I was 12 years old. It was actually Mother's Day for me, and that was the day that our family began to kind of blow up. I don't know if you ever had this moment where your parents, like it was, it was obvious that they're not gonna work out, and then the news broke out into your life, and then if you were in a season like I was in, I was 12 years old, and so like I was really needing things Things to be stable in my mom and dad's life because I was in middle school and that's a problem, right? And so my dad comes to me on Mother's Day. This is savage, y'all. He comes to me on Mother's Day and he says, son, why don't you get dressed? Your mom and, and, and your two brothers, they're already at church. So I'm like, all right, I'll start getting dressed. But I noticed that my dad has his bags packed. Now my dad, he traveled internationally for a living. And so that wasn't too weird, but I knew that he didn't have a trip coming up. And so I asked my dad, well, dad, where, where, where are you going? And I saw something I'd never seen in my life. I saw my dad for the first time in my life, he began to weep. My dad, he had nine fingers, he was tough. He worked in shipyards and he worked in oil fields and like he was the guy that just, just didn't ever really cry. And so he starts to cry and I'm like, uh-oh, something's not right. And I said, well, what's going on? And he says, your, your mother doesn't want me here anymore. I'm leaving, get dressed, I'm gonna take you to church, drop you off. And so I start getting dressed and, and I start trying to figure things out. My daddy drops me off at the curb of this big church. I don't remember if he says, I love you. I don't think he did. I don't, th I don't even remember if he said bye. All I remember is letting myself out of the truck that day, shutting the door. My dad left and we entered into a new season that I was not really prepared for. And here's what happened in the Glover household at that point in time. My mom and dad, because of their issues, they kind of they, they threw off their roles as mom and dad. And my mom, she slips into 
single mom mode. If you're a single mom, man, my heart goes out to you that you are one of the bravest people I know because you have to do it all. And so I start watching my mom in this season. She's got three boys that are all in puberty and teenage years. God love her, right? We are the death of my mom, I'm sure, someday. And so she is starting to navigate how to raise these teenage boys. Dad's out of the picture. Finances are on the blink. She's working multiple jobs, and she's having, in the midst of crisis, to wear all of these different hats. So at night, she'll put on the mom hat. She's like scratching my back, like, you're so strong. You could do anything. You know what moms do. And, and then like three minutes later, she's having to put on the dad hat and like, how could you? Can't believe that you did that, you know, that kind of thing. And she's having to wear both roles, and we made it work. But as I look back on that season, and I think everyone that's ever been in that situation would agree that that's not ideal, right? Like, like it's, not, it's not the best if, if mom is having to be mom and dad. It's not the best if dad is having to play the role of, of dad and mom. Like we would all agree on this, that families work best when the men know what they're supposed to do, when the women know what they're supposed to do, and the roles are harmonious and the household flourishes. And the reason why I start there tonight is because just like we have households and we want them to flourish when everyone kind of knows their role in the family, God has a household too. Like when it comes to what Jesus came to start, he came to start this movement that would be for all people called the church. And if you grew up thinking that the church is like this building, it's brick and mortar, that's not the church, y'all. I think in our culture, we've been like, yeah, I'm gonna go to church, that's the church. But listen, you are the church. If you are a follower of Jesus, when you read the Bible, Jesus came to start this movement called the church and he never envisioned it would be a brick and mortar building. He envisioned that it would be a body. And there's this metaphor that we find in 1 Timothy, and the guy that wrote 1 Timothy, he would say this, hey, hey, Timothy, I'm writing this letter to you so that you'll know how to arrange the household of God. And so what we find is that God not only sees his church as this body of people, but he would also envision it as a household, and that God, he has certain roles in which he wants people to play in his household. And when there's times of crisis, we have this tendency to dip into other roles just to survive. But when things are designed the way that they're supposed to be designed, men have roles, women have roles. And in the household of God, when we know those roles, things flourish. And so tonight, if you're taking notes, I've titled this message, The Household of God. The Household of God. And what I want you to see tonight is that we're gonna talk about the role of men. I'm coming at you, fellas. <laughs> and then we're gonna talk about the role of women. I'm gonna ease into that one. And then we're gonna finish with the role of Jesus. And I wanna show you one of the most offensive Bible passages of all time. Paul, he's written this letter to Timothy in the first century. And Paul, he helped jumpstart and kind of, he was like a spiritual entrepreneur. He helped jumpstart this church in a really influential port town called Ephesus. And this church, like it started getting momentum and so they started growing, and Paul, he's in, he's in a place where he can't get to Ephesus, and so he sends his protege or his apprentice, a guy named Timothy, and he says, I need you to take this letter, this, these instructions to the church at Ephesus. I need you to make sure it gets read, it gets listened to, and there begins to get some order so that we can have proper leadership in the church that would go on to be the most influential church in its day. And so Timothy, he takes this letter, and what we've already discovered is that he begins to read it, and he's saying, like, you need to focus. 
If you're gonna be a leader, you gotta have the right focus, and the focus is Christ, and that you've gotta be faithful to that focus, and that God's gonna send fruit when you are faithfully on task. And then he says that you need to understand, if you're gonna be a leader in the church, where that, where that begins, that leaders aren't found in the church, leaders are formed, that Christ does work in people's lives. And then he turns a corner, and he says, let me begin to tell you, functionally, put some handles as to what men and what women should do. And so let me tell you about the household of God. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8, is where we're going to drop in. Paul says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. If you're a man, you need to start underlining and circling these different things that Paul's telling you to do. He says, I desire that the men, that they pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Point number one, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down. The role of men, the role of men. Paul, he's saying in the household of God that there are some things that men need to do and there are some things that men don't need to do in order for the household to flourish. And so Paul, he's looking at the men, and he's saying, if you claim to follow Jesus and you want to be a leader in the church, this is what you need to do. Man, we got to know our role, and we got to embrace that role with gladness. And the things he tells us that we got to do, we got to pray, we got to lift up holy hands, and we got to put away wrath and doubt. So let's talk about those real quick. The role of men in the church, one of the primary roles of men that want to make an impact, that want to lead in the church, is to pray. Now, now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to praying, it feels like I ain't doing much. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's anybody. And, and I'm a doer. Like I like, to, I like to get things done. You know, I like to build things. I like to make things. I like to have progress. And so when I pray, I'm just like, but it reminds me that when it comes to building the church, it ain't about the sweat of my brow. It ain't about my ability. That I got to ask God to move mightily that we could gather up in here and have comfortable seats and nice lights and all the stuff, all the things. But if God doesn't show up, what are we doing? And the thing that ushers in the presence of God is prayer. I don't know if y'all heard, but Instagram had an outage yesterday. Some of y'all was freaking out, right? Oh my gosh, I can't check my feet. Like you just so like, just like, what happened? You know, and you're trying to figure out so that that doesn't happen again. There's a prayer outage in the church today. And sadly, some of us were investigating more about why Instagram shut down yesterday than we are about why our prayer life is on the blink or obsolete. But we, in the same breath, say, God, use me. Help me to change the world. Come on, man. We got to pray. And when we pray, there's something that God begins to do inside of us. First of all, God reminds us of our dependency. Prayer is the language of the dependent. If you're going to be a man of God, you've got to learn that you can't carry this life on your own, that you're going to need the Spirit of God to give you the strength of God so that you can be the man of God that he's called you to be. I would say it is impossible to be God's man on your own. You're going to need God. And the way that you physically express that you need God is you pray. Prayer is the language of the dependent. Not only is prayer the language of the dependent, but prayer allows you to focus on the character of God. See, prayer is not so much about changing God's character, or excuse me, it's not so much about changing God's mind about your situation. Prayer is more about God changing you in the midst of the process. That to pray is to change. And one of the primary things we do when we pray, fellas, is that we begin to profess the character of God, and it aligns our hearts with his character and his goodness, and it puts things in perspective. 
In prayer, it's a way that we cease. It's a way that we rest. Prayer is the vehicle by which God has given us to take our worries and our concerns and our anxieties and our problems and to give them to God. And if you're gonna be a man that leads, if you're gonna be a biblical man, you got to pray. This is your role. You've got to pray. I know for me, when I was first started following Christ, I'd hear things like that. You know, like, um, like I was starting to follow Christ. I'm like, I'm going to be God's man. I'm going to be God's man. And people were like, all right, you're going to need a Bible. I'm like, all right, I got my Bible. You know, and they're like, all right, and you're gonna need, you need to go home and you just need to pray. I'm like, all right, I got it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go pray. I'll be in my bed. I'll be like, Lord Jesus. <laughs> you know, I'll be just now, I'll be out, you know, just resting in his arms, right? And, uh, and, I, and, and, like, and I, I did that, and I'm like, what am I doing? And, it was just, and then people ask, like, you need to pray out loud. I'm like, all right, you know, what do I do? And, and so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll just kind of say things like, you got to go do this, and we won't give vision to it. And so I just want to share real quick what I do when I pray. I have a, I have a place that's quiet. It's uninterrupted. It's, it's not, there's no distractions in the place that I pray. This is my preferred place to pray. I literally get down on my, on my knees and I put my face into the ground. Because your body has a language, y'all know that. And if your body has a language, what message are you conveying to God in your posture? And there's something that happens when I lower my posture to the ground that helps me to literally clothe myself in humility. And to say things like, God, you are God, and I am not. And I always start my prayer off with a little bit of silence, which is so loud. I don't know if you've ever tried to be quiet, but it's hard. And what I'm doing is I'm almost preparing myself to pray. One theologian says, you need to pray until you're ready to pray. And what he was saying is that you need to quiet yourself. You've got to meditate with meaning. And you've got to quiet yourself so that you can then get into the presence of God. And what I mean by getting into the presence of God, it's not some mystical thing. You just simply begin to say to God the things you know about God. You may only know three things about God. You focus on those three things. God, you're loving, you're merciful, and you're gracious. Holy Spirit, I'm going to need another characteristic, you know. And then just start to thank God for the things he's done in your life. Don't thank him for everything. One theologian says, when you thank God for everything, you thank him for nothing. God, thank you for everything. No, get specific. Start to count your blessings. God does something in the midst of our gratitude in prayer. And then you bring your needs to God. Say, God, would you move on behalf of my friend who's in a predicament overseas? God, would you move on behalf of this situation? And God, would you bring me a spouse? And would she look like this? Would she act like this? You know, it's okay to pray for things. Some of y'all have not because you asked not, all right? God, would you bring breakthrough? Would you help me in this situation? And you get up and you feel like you ain't done much, but you've evoked almighty God to usher into your situation. If you want to be a leader in the church, men, if you want to be a biblical leader, you got to pray. He says that you, you got to pray, and he also says you got to lift up holy hands. Now, this is kind of not really a, a phrase that we use a lot in our culture, you know, and so let me explain what Paul means by lifting up holy hands. This phrase, holy hands, it's deeply rooted into the biblical language that Paul, he would have known about Psalm 24 that says, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to ascend to the hill of the Lord, which is a metaphor for God's presence, you got to have a clean heart 
and you've got to have pure hands. And what, what the psalmist is saying, what Paul is saying is that, men, if you want to be a biblical leader, you've got to be marked by holiness. Holiness literally means that you're set apart. God says, be holy because I am holy. What this means is that you wage war against your sin, that you understand that if you are a man of God, you're called to be set apart. And if you want to make an impact in the world, you don't have to have it all together, but you better be clean. God can use any old vessel as long as it's clean. And so are you holy men? God says that he wants you to have holy hands, not hands that do unholy things with your own self and with other people. You've got to have holy hands. You've got to wage war against the things that are coming for you that want to steal, kill, and destroy you. If you want to be a biblical leader, man, you've got to know your role, and you've got to pray, have holy hands. And he says that you've got to put away wrath and doubt. And maybe the men in this church, they were being abusive. Men, we have a tendency to do that. We'll use our words and we'll use our strength to dominate people in a way that does not please God. He says you've got to put that wrath away. And he says if you are doubting the word of God, you're not fit to be a biblical leader. So are you doubting God's word? I think maybe you come in here and maybe you know the Lord and, and you've been following him and you would say, no, I, I really believe in the book. I really believe what God's word says. But, but then we begin to look at your life. And I know that there's been seasons in my life where I'm like, yeah, there's a God. Jesus, he saved me. But then you begin to look at my actions and by my actions, i.e. my disobedience, you would say, well, then I doubt that you really believe what God's word says. Because if you believed what God's word said about this, you wouldn't be living this way. And that my doubt was evident in my disobedience. And I know that that wasn't just a me issue. And maybe you've come in here and you would say, I don't doubt God at all, but you are, dis you are being defiantly disobedient to God. And you can't be a biblical leader. You can't be God's man if you don't know your role, fellas. And so Paul, he's saying, if you want to be God's man, if you want to play the role that God has positioned you to play in the household of God, you've got to be a man of prayer. You've got to be a man of holy hands. You've got to be a man that puts away wrath, that puts away doubt, among other things. These are the two that he gives us. And Paul's talking about the household of God, and he's saying, men, it's time to rise up. And then he turns the corner, and he begins to address the ladies. And here's what he says, starting in verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. And he gives an example. He says, y'all shouldn't braid your hair or put on gold or pearls or costly clothing. I'll explain that in a minute. So if you are taking out your braids right now, it's okay. We, we love you. God loves you too. It's okay. I'll explain. But, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So again, he's saying you should dress in a way that brings glory to God. And he says again in verse 10, that this is proper for women who profess that God has changed their life and they're trying to live for God and that sort of thing. And he goes on to verse 11. It gets more complicated. He says this, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Take a deep breath, we'll unpack that. And he says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. If you're new to the Bible, Adam and Eve 
They're the first people that God created. Point number two, if you're taking notes, it's, uh, I want you to write this down, the role of women. The role of women. Again, Paul, he's saying in the household of God, there are some things that women should do and some things that women shouldn't do in order for the household to flourish. And he walks through like their appearance and he walks through kind of their education. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. And he also walks through the offices by which women should hold in the church. And so in verses 9 and 10, he's, he turns a corner, he looks at the women, he says, ladies, if you want to be a biblical leader, if you want to be the woman that God's created you to be in the household of God, in the, in the church, you got to be careful what you wear. Paul, he wants women to dress in a way that brings glory to God. And he gives these two examples, braids and jewelry. And the reason why he goes after those two things, because in this culture, there were really two, uh, two times a woman would, would dress this certain way. There was a category of prostitutes in first century Ephesus where they would braid their hair and they'd put on jewelry in order to entice customers. And then there was this other category of women that were wealthy and they would braid their hair in really elaborate ways and then they would wear jewelry as a way to kind of flaunt their wealth. And so what, what Paul is saying is that ladies, if you want to be a biblical leader, if you wanna be God's woman, you shouldn't flaunt your wealth or your body, but rather you should live and dress in such a way that brings glory to God. And he connects it to this attitude. He says, if you wanna be a woman that's marked by godliness and a woman that does good works, then you need to pay attention to your appearance. That he's basically telling us that we just need to be orderly in the way that we dress. And so you can dress fashionably, you just don't need to dress in such a way that's flashy. Like Paul, he's saying that if you, you claim that God has changed your inside, then it should begin to change your outside. And, and, and what will happen is that it can be extremely confusing when, when somebody's like, Jesus has changed my life, but then we don't see how he's really changed your life. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched The Bachelor, and like, they always have the girl that's like, I just love Jesus, and like, he, I wrote the Bible, and like, everyone's like, yes, okay, great. And then we begin to see how a girl's playing things out. You're like, I don't know if those two things match up, or, or maybe you've come in here and, and, and you, you, uh, you just pull out your Instagram profile. In the bio, it says Jesus follower, John 3, 16. And then we look at your posts. And it's like you're flaunting either your wealth or your body. Let me ask it this way. If I were to look at your post, if I were to look at your wall, would I have enough evidence to go, oh, yeah, makes sense that she's following God. If you're not following God, do what you want to do. But if you claim to be a woman of godliness, if you claim to be a woman that's trying to please the Lord, then what Paul is saying is that you need to appear that way because it can be a little bit confusing if you're flaunting your wealth or flaunting your body. He goes on and he begins to elevate women. It doesn't sound that way in verse 11. He says this, and let the women learn. Let's just stop right there. He says, let the women learn because in this culture, women were not allowed to learn in mixed company. And this is still prevalent in some of the major world religions to this day. If we were to just leave here and go to a mosque, or if we were to leave here and go to a Hindu temple, then what you will find is that there's a place where the women sit, that's in the back. And the men get to sit in the front. And in some religions, women don't get to learn with the men. But Paul, he's saying that in the household of God, women are welcome to sit with the men and learn. 
And he's saying, that, he's saying this, that I know that you grew up Jewish, and in this culture, if you grew up Jewish, women didn't go to school with boys. Or other people, like he's Paul's like, I know you grew up Greek, and if you grew up Greek, women, they weren't, education wasn't for a woman. He says, but in the household of God, let us elevate the women and let the women learn. And, and ladies, if you wanna be a biblical leader, then you should embrace the opportunity to learn, and you should enjoy the privilege that it is to learn, as we all should. But Paul, he tags this thing, and he says, let the women learn in silence. What does that mean, all right? And so like all the girls that you normally giggle tonight, they're like, no, I'm not gonna giggle, you know, like what does this mean? Like don't mistake what this means. And so when we look at this word, let me explain it real quick. When we look at this word, this word silence, it literally means that the ladies shouldn't learn in, an, in, a, in a distracting way. This word silence, it literally means that you're not meddling in other people's business, but you're seeking to learn the theology or you're seeking to learn the scripture for yourself. And again, ladies, if you're gonna be a leader in the church, you gotta be a learner. So Paul, he says, let the ladies learn. He's elevating the status of ladies in this. It may not seem that way in our culture, but when you do the cultural context, it's very, very clear. And then he goes on to talk about the office that women are supposed to fulfill in the church. And he says this, he says that women shouldn't teach or women should not even have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Once again, he uses that word that's so like, oh. But when we discover that word, again, it means that we shouldn't be in the church, meddling in other people's business, but we should be in there humbly learning the word of God. And so he says, let the women, they shouldn't teach and they shouldn't have authority. What does this mean? So does this mean that women can't teach? Does this mean that, that, that in the household of God, women are just restricted to a few things and they, they can't take the word of God and teach it to other people? And that's confusing because there's other parts of the Bible where women are teaching. In fact, the first person that Jesus resurrected and revealed himself to was a woman. And, and so it's a little bit confusing that Paul would say this when we have these other examples. So what are you saying, Paul? Well, let me give you a little bit of a lesson real quick in Greek grammar that will hopefully help us understand this because here's what, uh, here's what my household looks like. I've got a woman and I've got a, a wife that is a, an amazing teacher. And she can slice and dice this word of God like very few people that I know. In fact, she's been on this stage and she's actually taught people, mixed company, the word of God. And so like if, if she wasn't supposed to do that, then, what, then what's going on here? And, and really what she did was perfectly okay. And let me explain. Why? See, there's this Greek grammar in which Paul could have used the aortis tense or the infinitive tense. Something like, oh, you done lost me. Just tell me the point. But Paul, he uses the infinitive, which is really, really important because what he's saying is that women in the household of God should not have the office of a teacher or the office of a pastor. And let me be real clear with this quote. By using the infinitive instead of the aortist, Paul doesn't forbid, he does not forbid a woman to teach under appropriate conditions and circumstances. But to fill the office and role of the pastor or preacher or teacher in the life of the church. And so what Paul is saying is that the household of God functions best when the primary communicator and the primary leader is a man. But what he's not saying is that women cannot teach in the church. And so ladies, if you're hearing, what you're hearing right now is like, well, then I can't teach, what is that? No, no, what Paul is saying is that you should be a learner 
And you should also lead in the gifts that God has given you by teaching. That Paul is saying in the church and in the household of God, it flourishes when women lead this way. I've got these three little girls, I call them my muchachitas, and, they, and they're so beautiful, and we're trying to raise them up so that they would know their gifts and they would run after Jesus with their gifts. And we're trying to teach them that, that this is not about limitations, but this is about liberty for them to understand how their bodies are made and this fall, and they can wear fall colors and cute dresses and all the things, but they need to know even at this age that there's a certain way in which you can dress that brings glory to God. And there's a certain way that you can dress that brings glory to yourself. And let us teach you that because we want you to be girls that grow up into women that will be leaders in the church. And we want you to be women that understand that there's something that God has to say to you. And so let us immerse you in the word of God so that you can learn because you have equal opportunity to learn just like everybody else. And we also want you to be ready and willing to share the gospel and to teach underneath proper, godly, biblical authority when given the opportunity. So Paul, he says, in the household of God, this is how it flourishes, when men know their role, when women know their role. Now, what happens a lot of times when people study this passage is they wanna write off these truths as being um, a part of, of the culture in which it was written, but it's no longer applicable to our culture today. Now, the biggest problem with that is that Paul likens the instructions that he's given to the church to the creation order. And he says there in verse 13, he says, the creation order, he said, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. That the roles that we see played out in the household of God are not a result of the rebellion that we led against God. Like God set clear roles in place before the fall of mankind. And so roles are not the result of the fall, but abuse in those roles and confusion in those roles are a result of the fall. And because we live in a corrupt world, and because we live in a sinful world, it's confusing. And texts like this are really challenging because women have been abused by men. And men... Maybe less, but they've, they've been abused by women. And so there's all of this history and confusion, but God is writing to us something that has been preserved, God's word, that says this is how the household flourishes when you know your roles. Paul, he finishes this little section when he's addressing the women and he's reminding us how these roles matter and that there's something that took place in the beginning that we need to be reminded of, but also that God has given women a distinct role in which the savior of the world would come to be known. And here's what it says in verse 14. It says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So he's kind of saying like, here's why there's some things that are, that are structured and, and not that men can't be deceived or men are better or smarter, but this is God saying, I'm trying to protect you. And then he says, while he's kind of throwing Eve under the bus, he picks her back up and he says this in verse 15, he says, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What does it mean that she's gonna be saved in childbearing? Now there's three words that really, really capture the simplicity and the meaning of this text. And I wanna make everyone really, really clear and everyone really, really on the same page with these three words. If anyone ever asks you, what does this verse mean? You give them this three word answer. I think you remember it. Only God 
knows, all right? And so this is one of those things, like, that you have to have a baby in order to go to heaven. Like, I don't know, what, what is Paul saying? Let me be clear, that is not what he's saying, all right? And there's a lot of different ways you can slice and dice this, but let me show you what Paul's trying to do in this context. Is he saying that Eve had this problem, this predicament, but God also is elevating the role of a woman, and he's saying, but this is, this is the, the gender, this is the role by which God would usher in the savior of the world. That he's saying that roles matter, that there's only certain things that women can do, and then there's only certain things that men can do, and then there are certain things that we can both do, but in the household of God, roles matter, and we should embrace those roles with submission and gladness to God. And Paul reminds us that it was through the unique role of a woman that the Savior entered the world. And he finishes this little section towards women by calling them to a few things. He says that women, if you want to be a biblical leader, if you want to be a leader in the church, if you want to be God's woman, you got to be filled with faith. you got to be filled with love and holiness and self-control, that you can lead the way in your appearance. You can lead the way in the way that you are a learner. You can lead the way in your teachings and in your livings, and you can lead the way that you are faith-filled, and you can lead the way that you are filled with a love, and you can lead the way that you are set apart in your holiness, and you can lead the way in, you are, in which you are filled with self-control. So ladies, are you a person of faith? Are you a person of love, holiness, and self-control? Now, up until this point, we're just talking about how God wants to structure his household. But really, none of this matters unless you know the role of Jesus. Like, like what does it matter how the household of God is arranged if you're not in the family? And so if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, you may think some of this is a little bit, you know, like too much. I'm not real sure, but if you don't follow Jesus, you don't need to be focused with some of these other things until you first find Christ. But for those of us who are here and we claim to follow Jesus, what we say is that we have died to our way of life. We have died to our agenda and we are putting our submission, we are putting our yes, we are putting our, our obedience into the hands of Christ. If he has changed our life, let us live our life in such a way. Paul, he backs up in chapter two, starting in verse one, and he says this, and this is where I wanna to finish tonight. He, he says, therefore, and he's looking back at what happened in chapter one. He talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's, these are these guys that Paul basically had to ask to step down from leading and to step away from the church. He says, in light of that trauma that we're going through, he says, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. What he's saying, basically, is that we should pray as a church. We should pray, and he gives us some things to pray for. He says in verse 2, we should pray for kings and for all who are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That Paul's saying that we should pray and we should pray for those who are in authority so that they would build a society in which we can live peaceably. We can live in our simplicity as Christians and worship God. So when was the last time you prayed for President Biden? When was the last time you prayed for our governor in Missouri? When was the last time you prayed for those who are in authority so that we can continue to practice our faith freely? That's what he's calling the church to do. And then he goes on in verse three, and he says this, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. 
He tells us a little about God here in verse four. He says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? I love this because if you're here and you don't know much about God, but what Paul's saying is that God wants you to know him. Like God has moved heaven and earth so that you can have the chance to know him. And then he goes on and he says this, perhaps one of the most offensive passages in all of the Bible. You thought we already covered it, but actually it's here. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And the reason why this is one of the most offensive passages in all the Bible is because it declares with clarity there's one God. Does it matter what the world says? It doesn't matter what history has said. Doesn't matter what the other religions say, what the scripture is saying, and we stand on this authority that there is one God. And a lot of us, we, we would maybe agree on that. Like, yeah, there's a God out there, but the scripture goes on and says, not only is there only one God, but there's also only one way to know the God. That there's only one way by which man can be right with God, and we don't like this in our culture. We don't like the exclusive claims of Christianity. But listen, every religion has its own exclusive claims, even atheism. But Christianity is the only faith that is as inclusive as it is. Because in Christianity, it says that God desires that all men would come to know him. Not just the good. Not just the rich. Not just the certain color, not just a certain status, but that all would come to know him. And Jesus, he says, I'm the only way, but everyone's welcome today. And this is the watershed of Christianity. This is one of the stalwart verses of Christ that Paul has given us. And if you don't catch anything that I've said tonight, don't miss this that Christ loves you, he's desiring for you to know him, that there is one God and deep down inside you know this to be true. And you may not know this to be true, but by God's authority and by his word, he says there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who loved you so much that he gave himself as a ransom for your life so that you could give him your unrighteousness and, and he would give you his righteousness in return. And Paul, he goes on and finishes this little section. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And an apostle is, is basically like a founding member of the church, an entrepreneur for the church. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Point number three, if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write down this, the role of Jesus. The role of Jesus. That Paul, again, he's saying that in the household of God, that the people of God, they flourish when they understand their roles and when we clearly understand Jesus' role. And if you don't know much about Jesus, here's what you need to know about Jesus, that the role of Jesus is to save sinners. Now, we don't like to admit this, but we need saving. Maybe you come in here tonight and, and you're not a bad person, and I'm sure you're a great person, but, but you have to compare yourself to the right standard. See, God expects perfection, and nobody would say they're a perfect person. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. I think we would all agree on that. And what that makes us is categorically in the scriptures, we're a sinner. You are a sinner. 
I am a sinner. And what this means is that we are desperately sick. Our soul is sick and we need a savior. And the good news is that the role of Jesus is to save sinners. And we need him to move. See, our world's broken, man. What that means is that we rebelled against God, which made us at odds with God. And God, he he didn't want this to happen because he wants us to be in right relationship with him so that we can give him glory. And so the scripture says that he desires that all men would know him, that all men would be at peace with him. And in order to get this peace treaty going, he sent his son Jesus to be the mediator of this conflict so that Jesus could so that Jesus could bring peace. And how did he mediate for our sin? He was massacred for it. That he died for it. That Paul says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom. This word ransom in the original language, Paul gives like he gives a, an emphasis on the way that the ransom was delivered. That Paul makes it really clear that Jesus, the ransom that he paid was everything, was his life. Oh, that you would be melted and moved by the price that was paid so that you would have the opportunity to be right with God. That Jesus was sent to jump into this world and to absorb the wrath of God so that you and I would be saved. Earlier this year in a town called Ocean City, Maryland, There was a wreck. You can see a picture of the wreck right here. This car hits the guardrail of this bridge. What you don't know is that in this car was a baby. And when the wreck happened, the baby was flung from the car into the water. There was a man named Joe who saw the wreck take place and he pulled over because, man, we run to the chaos, not away from it. And he sees what's going on. He looks over the bridge and he sees that there's a baby that is drowning in the water. And so what does Joe do? This hometown hero, he jumps over the bridge and he jumps into the water and he rescues the baby. And local news outlets are going crazy. Why aren't we hearing these stories also, you know, during the pandemic, right? Like this is amazing. That this guy, he saw this helpless child being overtaken by the waters and he jumped in and saved her. And this is a picture of what Christ has done for humanity. That he saw us flung into the waters of God's wrath and then there was no way, just like this baby, there was no way the baby could swim or, or save itself. And we're in this cesspool of sin and we can't get out and we needed somebody to jump in and save us and thank God that there is a mediator. There is one that rescued us. There is a Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that jumped into the waters of God's wrath and he saved us from our predicament. And Jesus came so that we wouldn't sink Jesus came to rescue us. Joe made it out alive. Jesus didn't. He gave his life so that you and I could have life. And it really doesn't matter how you organize the household of God if you're not even in the family. And I pray that tonight, if you don't know Christ, you would come to know him. And I pray that tonight, if you do know Christ, that you would embrace the role that God has placed you 
in so that you can be the leader, ladies, so that you can be the leader, men, that God's called you to be. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you that you have miraculously preserved your truth throughout the eons of history so that we can read it tonight. And God, I pray that you'd give us hearts that would submit. God, help us to know our role and help us to walk. And I pray that you would raise up godly men that would be marked by prayer, that would be marked by holiness, and they would put away wrath and doubt, that you would raise up godly women that would dress in such a way that would bring you glory. God, that you would raise up godly women that would be learners, that you would give them opportunities to teach, and that you would help them to have glad submission under godly authority. God, that the household of God would be in shambles the household of God would be marked by healthy men in the right role and healthy women in the right role. And you would bring flourishing once again to your house. Where your household's in crisis, I pray you'd give us grace and help us to do our best. God, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would just overwhelm them with your mercy, overwhelm them with the reality that there is a way by which we can be saved and that way is inviting them to come and to be known and to be loved and to be forgiven and you'd help them to find salvation tonight. God, we thank you for your creation. We thank you for your salvation. In Christ's name I pray.